As the Weber family, our job is to show you this wild place, be it the wildlife, be it the untamed landscapes, be it the history of the place, whether it's, you know, archaeological Inuit or the early explorers that tried to conquer the Northwest Passage. And our goal is to go out and explore every day, whether we're hiking, whether we're biking, whether we're sea kayaking. You're listening to a podcast by Butterfield and Robinson. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening. This is The Slow Road, and I'm Dane Treadway, an experienced designer with Butterfield and Robinson. Today, we're chatting with Tessa Weber, whose family own and operate a collection of camps and lodges up in the Canadian Arctic. We'll be partnering with Weber's for an upcoming small group departure at one of their properties, Arctic Watch. And I wanted to connect with Tessa to chat a little bit about travel in the Arctic. Hey, Tessa. Hey, thanks for... Uh Thanks for having me on the show today, Dane. Um, yeah, we're uh, a small family-run business. Uh, we've been operating the Canadian Arctic for, oh, three generations now. Um, we're uh, based in Canada. We focus uniquely in the Canadian Arctic. And uh, we have a, a rather unique story, I think, that uh, that has placed us to where we are. Uh, my grandfather came over as a Swiss mountain climber in uh, the 1950s and did uh, some of the first major ascents in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, James Bond in the opening credits to The Spy Who Loved Me, he jumps off of uh, Mount Asgard, this beautiful iconic granite tower in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, my grandfather was the first to climb that mountain in 1953 and uh, he led uh, uh, quite the polar career um, and uh, uh, my father uh, led some of the first expeditions to both poles, was the first person to reach the North Pole uh, unsupported and return um, in 1995. And uh, it's safe to say that uh, we grew up in a family that was uh, very adventurous, where, uh, you know, having dinner table conversations about polar bears and muskox and what mountain we were going to climb next or what uh, what ice cap we were going to ski was just normal. And uh, at, uh, at a young age, we uh, lived with a nomadic Inuit family uh, on the coast of Baffin Island. They were one of the last, what, what were actually the last truly nomadic Inuit family. Um, so uh, we, have, over many generations, have developed a very strong passion for the North. And... Um, we're uh, very lucky to have uh, a small group of guests that have followed us over several decades across our adventures and uh, and uh, including our lodges. Um, so uh, I wanted to uh, just shed a little bit uh, a light. We started with uh, a lodge called Arctic Watch about 22 years ago and uh, have since gone on to open other lodges and other operations in the Arctic, which our family, we all run, own and operate. Um, but uh, Arctic Watch has definitely always stayed uh, uh, near and dear to the heart and uh, we uh, Arctic Watch was uh, originally built as a beluga whale watching location it's one of the last beluga nurseries in the world uh, there's about two two to three thousand whales that come into a very shallow river to nurse and molt for about six weeks every year uh, and there's truly nowhere else like that uh, on the planet that this takes place um, and we arrived as a family 20 odd years ago and saw that this was an amazing place uh, and had some amazing potential um, but we wanted to showcase uh, as much of the arctic as possible this beautiful location was a really good fit and arctic watch is a place that has polar bears and muskox and arctic foxes and seals and snowy owls and 
we go out and we hike, we bike, we sea kayak, we raft, we fly fish, um, and uh, and we explore this amazing place called the Canadian Arctic. And uh, our family, we've uh, hosted people from all over the world at our lodge over the last 22 years, and uh, and we're very lucky to be continuing to um, to do so. Arctic Watch is located 800 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle and is one of the most northerly fly-in lodges on Earth. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the logistical challenges you face running a lodge that's so far off the beaten path? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, simple things like, you know, getting into the lodge is, is uh, you have to remember this, this lodge where we're located is uh, the island is 25,000 square kilometers, completely uninhabited. Uh, we're closer to, you know, effectively closer to the North Pole than we are to the nearest city. Um, and uh, the question is, is how do you get people into a place like this that is truly remote, that has no infrastructure, no civilization? Uh, well, you have to build an airstrip to start uh, to fly people in. And uh, so building an airstrip is, uh, you know, you don't just uh, walk down to the hardware store and talk to the contractor and he builds you an airstrip. You, uh, I mean, you have to build it from scratch and you have to figure out how to build an airstrip. Um, and uh, so uh, when we first started many years ago, we were flying in very small planes into the lodge and using a very short airstrip. And we figured out that, uh, I mean, quite quickly that uh, we needed to build a bigger airstrip to bring planes from the south uh, that we could fly our guests into Arctic Watch in a very, very remote place. Um, so we started out by buying a bulldozer, putting it on a ship. And uh, that ship very slowly over the course of about a year went all the way up to Resolute Bay, which is the nearest Inuit community across the Northwest Passage, and, uh, and dropped this bulldozer off. Uh, this bulldozer is about 100 kilometers from Arctic Watch, the other side of the Northwest Passage, a channel of open water. And uh, and we had to get this bulldozer across the Northwest Passage over to our island and then build an airstrip. And uh, so we waited till winter. And uh, over the course of uh, about two weeks, my father actually drove this bulldozer over the sea ice um, over about 100 kilometers of sea ice right over the Arctic Ocean to Somerset Island. And all of a sudden, we had a bulldozer to start building an airstrip. Um, so a lot of uh, uh, challenges like that have come up over the years that have never been easy. But, uh, I mean, we've usually figured it out in the end. And a family of very creative and very positive people that uh, work hard, you can usually figure out most challenges. Uh, building an airstrip is not an easy thing when you've never built an airstrip before. But, uh, you know, driving a bulldozer over the Northwest Passage in the middle of the winter well you know we're pretty good at navigating sea ice and uh and uh, and so we'll figure it out um building an airstrip uh, that took us almost 10 years to properly build such a big airstrip uh, to such a standard to bring you know big aircraft from southern canada to fly up um is is something that had never been done before um you know getting food into our facilities on a weekly basis is a challenge you know when you're coordinating food from Quebec, from Ontario, from British Columbia, getting it shipped fresh all the way to Yellowknife in the Northwestern Territories and then packing it onto a plane and flying it all the way up is, is a, a challenge in itself. Um, you know, getting uh, supplies to the lodges is, is a challenge as well. Um, and then, uh, I mean, being in a very remote place, operating a lodge, uh, making sure that our guests are, you know, very comfortable, have great food, have a comfortable room, have a, a hot shower, uh, have, you know, 
know, power and heat and all these sorts of things, things that guests never see, um, is something that is very challenging when you're in a very, very remote place. Um, and, uh, and we're very lucky to have a great team that allows us to, uh, to do these things. And as a family over the years, I mean, we've built infrastructure that, uh, you know, from, from our generators to our power systems, to our, our water systems, um, all these things were built by hand over many years. And, uh, and it allows our guests to come to these very remote places and, you know, simple things like having a hot shower and sitting down and having a great meal after a day on the tundra and a comfortable bed to relax in is, uh, is things that are a challenge in, its, in, uh, in itself. Your family have been guiding polar expeditions for decades now, uh, beginning with your father, Richard, in 1993, uh, leading the world's first commercial trek to the North Pole. Uh, in addition, your mother, Jose, pioneered women-only expeditions to the North and the South Poles. Can you tell me a little bit about why you think that tourism in the Arctic is so important and and what is it about the Arctic that makes it such a unique destination? Yeah, um, in my opinion, the Arctic is the last truly wild place in the world. Uh, a really good example is uh, you go to Antarctica and, you know, there are literally cruise ships after cruise ship of people going in there's uh, they're projecting something like a hundred thousand people visiting antarctica in the next five years the arctic is a place that has little to no infrastructure made by humans it's one of the place the last places that we've truly conquered and as a result it's it's remained wild uh i mean where in the world do you have uh an island that is 25,000 square kilometers completely uninhabited and is, is, you know, the last humans were living there hundreds of years ago uh, and effectively left um, and uh, because it was too wild. Uh, there's not many places like that left in the world. I mean, we're, we're in an era of globalization where, you know, we can jump in a plane and go anywhere. Uh, but most places we go to, there is some sort of human element that uh, or a small town or village or, you know, a game park. And outside of that game park, there's a town. Uh, and this just simply doesn't exist in the Arctic. This is a place that is is truly wild. Uh, our nearest neighbors, I mean, you're more likely to run into a polar bear or a muskox than you are a, a person. And uh, and I think that is very special in our ever globalized world where uh, you come to a place that is, uh, is, is the same as it was 500 years ago, as it was a thousand years ago. And, uh, and while climate change is, of course, slowly reshaping uh, the Arctic, it's still, uh, I mean, Mother Nature is still the king of, of, uh, of the Arctic and hopefully will remain so for, for many years to come. Given that it's such a fragile location, what impact, if any, have you seen in your lifetime of tourism in the Arctic? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. The Canadian Arctic is definitely opening up more and more, especially with, you know, less sea ice being present now. It's easier for ships to get in. Um, and and while these elements are, are, you know, really only just starting, there's a balance that has to be has to be struck and has to be found. A really good example is, you know, for a millennia, there's Two, two to 3,000 whales that have come into Arctic Watch to nurse and molt every season for six weeks. And, you know, you have hundreds of mothers and babies that come into this very shallow river to, uh, to, to, to rub on the rocks, to socialize, to play, and, and have not, basically have not had any human interference ever. Um, and last summer, we had a, a, a ship that parked itself at the mouth of the Northwest Passage, and they tried to drive two Zodiacs into the bay and effectively scared about 800 whales, nursing whales, uh, out of the bay. Um, so I think as, you know, human civilization gets bigger and bigger and we start to contact 
we start to visit these places more and more, the uh, balance of understanding these wild places and keeping them wild is, is crucial. But at the same time, uh, educating people about these wild places, knowing that, you know, we have to create a balance, otherwise they will simply never exist. I mean, you can't scare 800 whales too many times, otherwise they'll simply leave. Uh, and these whales have been coming for a thousand years and we want them to come back for another thousand years. Um, so I think as places get busier and as, as places get visited more and more, we have to try and find that balance. And that's something that I think across all our operations is, is really important. Um, is uh, is you know simple things like we're in this pristine environment uh, our garbage that we generated our lodge we have to dispose of that garbage carefully uh, you know we have to fly out anything that we can't uh, that won't break down uh, things like gray water made from showers uh, you know we have to ensure that all the soaps are fully biodegradable that the water's filtered so that what goes back into the environment is truly clean simple things like cleaning products. I mean, they all have to be truly biodegradable. Uh, when we go out for a walk on the tundra, you know, we have to walk in areas that uh, we're not going to scar the tundra. If we're driving a vehicle, we have to stick to the trails um, to make sure that we don't scar that land. Uh, so it's it's definitely, a, a, the Arctic is a very fragile place. So I think it's important as, as globalization gets bigger that, uh, I mean, we try and find that balance. In addition to the sophisticated environmental practices that you have in place at your camps and lodges, what other conservation efforts, if any, are you guys involved in? Yeah, um, the uh, and of course, I mean, at our lodges, we have you know all our garbage is carefully sorted, and our, our we have uh, systems to manage our the what's waste is produced. But um, there's also, I think, an importance to the environment in continuing to f- facilitate research uh, because we have access to these truly wild places that are so few left in the world. I think it's our duty to invite people to uh, study these environments. Um, so. So for uh, 2021, there's actually, uh, and over the years, I mean, we've hosted beluga whale researchers at our lodges to study the whales. Uh, We've hosted permafrost specialists to look at the tundra and how the permafrost is receding. Um, But uh, there are a couple new projects that we're working on or we're we're hosting simply um, is uh, there's uh, a researcher coming from the University of Calgary who uh, she, her name is Dr. Susan Coots. She is the foremost. Uh, muskox and caribou researcher in North America and she's looking at uh, how parasites are moving north Um, so over uh, the last 10 years with climate change and the warming of the Arctic parasites have been moving north and affecting caribou and muskox populations and uh, while we know uh, this parasite has reached the mainland of Canada and the most northern extremities of Canada we don't know if this parasite has jumped to the Arctic islands in the Canadian Arctic. And uh, so we're inviting her up to come and look at Somerset Island and see if these parasites have reached this far north yet. Um, there's, uh, there's a project we're also uh, helping facilitate using uh, with a researcher out of Germany, really sharp, uh, sophisticated satellite imagery to count wildlife populations. Um, so he'll be using uh, satellites to count belugas in Cunningham Inlet and, uh, and trying to st- establish a baseline um, of population health. And using that satellite imagery to, um, we'll also be helping him to use that satellite imagery to count other populations in the Arctic, uh, you know, populations like caribou, populations like narwhal, uh, and so on. Um, so there are are projects that we're working on. And uh, I think 
you know, as it's as our duty, it's it's important to try and facilitate these projects and uh, welcome people to our facilities to uh, I mean to to continue their work. You touched on this a bit earlier, and I just wanted to circle back to the indigenous population of the Arctic because I found it so fascinating. Um, You know, Arctic Watch is known for its wildlife, but after having spent some time there, one of the standouts was certainly the archaeological sites um, for a location that's so remote um, to be so rich in history, uh, human history, um, I thought was uh, really intriguing. What sort of relationship do you have with the indigenous peoples of Nunavut, if any, and and what's their perception of of what you guys are doing? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So our lodges are in sort of modern day indigenous populations. Our lodges are, are not near any communities. Um, and uh, we're, we're quite far from any communities, the, hence why we fly indirectly to our lodges. Um, but we do work with uh, communities in the Arctic. And I mean, we do employ Indigenous people who work at our lodges. Um, and that's simply just out of, uh, I think, the belief of, of uh, I mean, being in these wild environments and we have to help support Indigenous culture. And, uh, and part of that culture is, is spending time in these wild environments. And, and uh, I mean, through conservation, you know, taking having Indigenous people working out for wildlife viewing and, and, uh, and ecotourism, I think, is, is one of the keys of, of giving back to the north. Um, so we do have people that work at our facilities um, in, and, uh, and they're from communities communities in the north. Um, But at the same time, uh, there is, uh, I think, within the facilities or near our lodges, there's a really interesting archaeological history that uh, basically are the ancestors to modern Inuit, uh, the Thule people. And uh, the Thule people lived in very small, uh, small, basically tent-like structures uh, for uh, about a thousand years. And uh, the culture is about a thousand years old. And a lot of these archaeological sites are are dotted across the Arctic. Um, But on Somerset Island, especially where Arctic Watch is located, we're we're really fortunate to have a lot of these sites that are, you know, anywhere from about 500 to 1500 years old. And these are basically the, uh, the ancestors to modern Inuit, and they were more or less a Stone Age culture that lived off whaling, uh, lived in coastal areas. And uh, I think what is really special about the area is to, uh, you know, go out for a hike and you come up to an archaeological site that is uh, 800 years old and has not been touched since, you know, people left 800 years ago uh, to find, you know, tools and implements that are are, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years old um, and that are literally just sitting there and have been sitting there for 500 to 1,000 years old is not something you see much much more uh, anymore today unless you're uh, you're in a museum um, so I think by uh, a working with communities and having you know and uh, indigenous people work at our lodges but also uh, showing guests and and these people who work for us some of these sites it's a little bit of a way that we can you know contribute and give back to uh, to the north that we love so much BNR will have exclusive use of Arctic Watch the second week of July 2021 for one of our small group departures. And I'm often asked what travelers can expect uh, when they head up to the Arctic. As someone who spent most of their lives up there, I'm curious to get your perspective. What can first timers look forward to uh, when heading up north? You know what? I think you can expect a truly wild place like you've never seen before. Uh, you're stepping into uh, one of the furthest corners of the planet 
And uh, as uh, as the Weber family, our job is to show you this wild place, be it the wildlife, be it uh, the untamed landscapes, be it the history of the place, whether it's, you know, archaeological Inuit or uh, or the early explorers that tried to conquer the Northwest Passage. Um, and, uh, and our goal is to go out and explore every day, whether we're hiking, whether we're biking, whether we're sea kayaking. Um, and uh, and uh, we're, we're, this is what you can expect is the wild Arctic as it truly is in small groups. You're staying at a small lodge, having great food, great wine, relaxing. You're not roughing it in a tent. And, uh, and with, uh, with our friends from uh, Butterfield, we're heading out there to explore every day. Before we sign off, I just had a few quick personal questions about your time in the Arctic, starting with your, your favorite Arctic experience of all time. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a hard one. Um, you, you know what? The Arctic has so many places that are, you know, vast and amazing in so many different regions that uh, I've, I've been really lucky even as a kid to, uh, to grow up, you know, sneaking up on a dozing polar bear in the tundra or, uh, or catching big fish or going for a hike. Uh, but I think in, in, uh, some of the highlights personally anyways um, that I've had over the years is uh, the access to wildlife that we have. Um, so, you know, simply going down after dinner at, at Arctic Watch and sitting by the beach and watching the whales play um, and being, you know, a few meters from hundreds and hundreds of whales in a few feet of water is is uh, breathtaking. Uh, and, uh, and I still got a kick out of it all these years later. Um, and it's something that, you know, every year when I see the whales arrive is uh, is something that uh, that warms the soul and uh, and is very special. Um, and uh, I think also some of the experiences that we've had on the Northwest Passage, you know, sea kayaking out amongst the ice flows, some of the days in the really calm water sea kayaking on the ice flows are, are uh, particularly special to me. Um, and uh, and hiking inland as well. Um, some of the, in the early season at Arctic Watch in the summer when the tundra blooms and the saxifrage is in full bloom and muskox are grazing and, you know, to be hiking through these beautiful canyons and over this lush tundra um, and with literally nothing in sight but the open Arctic is, is, uh, is special. Um, and so, you know, I have a collection of these personal experiences that I love from many, many years in the Arctic, but those are a few that definitely come, come to mind. And what about a favorite Arctic meal? <laughs> uh, you know what? Probably Arctic char sashimi uh, is, uh, I love fresh Arctic char and, uh, and our chefs make really good sashimi with fresh Arctic char. So that's probably my favorite truly Arctic meal. And lastly, which Arctic location would you like to explore? Um, we've, uh, I've been spending a lot of time, uh, uh, in the last couple of years, especially, uh, skiing on Baffin Island. And, uh, definitely there's a few mountains and mountain ranges there that, uh, I've had a lot of fun exploring and I want to continue to explore. Um, and, uh, so my, uh, my spring, while my summer home is Arctic watch, my, my spring home is, is skiing on Baffin Island. And I'll probably spend a little bit more time exploring there as well. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Tessa. I really appreciate uh, you chatting with me and uh, looking forward to seeing you again up in the Arctic. Yeah, looking forward, really looking forward to the adventure. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for tuning in. Music for this podcast was provided by Lobo Loco and Kevin McLeod via the Free Music Archive.